So, mic drop. Who's aware of this term, mic drop? So, a bit of a, a backstory then to educate you. So, the, the mic drop originated uh, from the uh, inner cities in the US in the 1980s rap scene, which I'm sure many of you are intimately familiar with. <laughs> and it's a sign, it was a sign of... Of, of triumph and victory. So when a rapper had done a particular set and, uh, and, and uh, you know, they would battle face to face, they would literally drop the mic in front of the other rapper as a, as a sort of very uh, sort of showmanship way of saying, look, what are you going to come uh, at me now with, uh, you know, is there any comeback? Uh, comedians do it as well when they have a heckler. They may sort of uh, have a good response and a good comeback and then drop the mic. But it's, in, in, in these days, it's uh, much more prevalent. You can see Barack Obama there. That was just at the end of his second uh, presidential uh, term, one of his last speeches, where he literally then dropped the mic at the end of the speech as a, as a very sort of uh, uh, impactful way of saying, it's finished, it's done, uh, uh, you know, the job has been completed. And we see it, you know, there's a lot of memes and, and a lot of people uh, use it in many, many different ways now. And, uh, you know, it got me thinking, you know, there are accounts that we can read of uh, certain times when Jesus was in a discussion or a heated discussion or, or preaching or, 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 or interacting with people where, you know, he wouldn't be out, it wouldn't be out of place if he had a mic if he were to drop it. It wouldn't be out of place as a, as a, as a sign of, of, of victory, of triumph, of, of uh, you know, just an impactful way of, of uh, concluding an argument. And we're going to be looking at one of the uh, first times where, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of pinpointed a mic drop moment. And before we get there, uh, Dave last week did a really good job of giving us an, this overarching view of God's rescue plan right from the very start of the Bible. And I want to uh, go about 750 years before the birth of Christ and look at Isaiah, which uh, won't come as a surprise to many because we're going to be talking about Isaiah, I'm sure, up until Christmas as we really start to dig into these prophecies and these signposts and direction uh, of the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. And Isaiah is just full of them. So, we can look, and you've got a time. You can you can see that I've had some time off from work. You don't normally get this service, do you, of timelines and uh, and stuff like that. But you can see here, and I'll try and get out of the way. Where's the best place for me to stand and stay put? So Isaiah is about 750 years before Jesus was born, and he was living in the time when the kingdom of Israel was was an independent kingdom. There was no foreign rule or occupation, uh, or or invasion. And Isaiah had many different prophecies about this coming uh, Messiah, this saviour, this one that is promised. But not too far after Isaiah, we get into the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, the, 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 the exile to Babylon. 
where many people, many, many senior and important and noted families and, uh, and groups of people within Israel were torn away from their home, torn away from their home country and had to live in exile. So this is the time of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace and, and that particular time period. And then it doesn't really get any better because after the Babylonian exile, there's uh, occupation after occupation of this, this kingdom of Israel just being a province. Whether it was uh, through the time of the Persians, through uh, after the Greek and Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great, uh, and that being split up, and then right into Roman times. And we can see here as well that this, this massive gap between Malachi and Jesus, and that's the 400 or so years between the Old and the New Testament, where there's centuries of seemingly little revelation, little uh, input or direction or, 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 or communication from God. And this time frame of, of, of centuries, you can imagine there being very different types of people within the Jewish faith and the Jewish people group. People that, when they looked back at Isaiah's prophecies, either, you know, orally told around a, around a fire in a house or, or, or some of it would have been recorded. No, we, Isaiah was off his rocker. It got it wrong. Or we've exaggerated it over the years like a game of Chinese whispers. Or actually God changed his mind. God's forgotten about us. But there would have been many that would have clinged on to these in hopefulness, clinged on to these promises and these prophecies. The Messiah will come. God has not forgotten us. It's going to happen. We've just got to get through this dark period of exile. We've just got to get through this dark period of occupation and, and, and God will come. This Messiah will come. You can see a few of these prophecies just on the, uh, on the next slide. So in the time of the Babylonian exile, groups of people torn away from their home in a foreign land, maybe meeting in secret to, to pray and to worship, to recount these prophecies, the hope that they would have got from the likes of Isaiah 11. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. That must have been a, a, a very familiar refrain for those, people in, those Jewish people in Babylon. Holding on to that promise. Holding on to that prophecy. Surely... It's been 150 years since Isaiah prophesied that. It's got to be soon. It's got to be soon. But an even two, three hundred years later under foreign occupation, another generation of Israelites would have held on to Isaiah 6. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You can imagine the Israelites gathering around. It's been hundreds of years since Isaiah prophesied. We've been under Persian rule. We've been under uh, Greek Macedonian rule. Surely now is going to be the time very soon in our generation that the Savior will come and will reign on David's throne, upholding it with justice for forever. Surely now is going to be the time. And in the centuries of silence between Malachi and the New Testament when John the Baptist walked the earth, they may have held on to Isaiah 61, this is where it gets a bit problematic, but we'll go with it. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We will get more revelation from our Lord. The Lord has not forgotten us. This Messiah will come and he will say these words. We haven't heard from God for hundreds of years, but surely, surely it's got to come. Surely when I'm alive, it will come. You can just get a sense over this 750 years, the, 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 the hope, the words, the prophecies that the Israelites would have clinged on to and said to each other, surely now is the time. Surely now is the time. So we get to the time of John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus, who was really there and he proclaimed to be the, the, the messenger of someone greater who was going to come after him. And because of the things that John the Baptist said, because of the way that he conducted himself, because of the following that he, he achieved, people started to ask the question, could John be who we're looking for? We read in Luke chapter 3, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John said to them, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. And the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So you can kind of imagine at that point, a few people, I'm sure, it's not recorded, but I'm sure a few people asked a clarifying question. When you say, Someone will come. Do you, could you give us a bit of a timeline? Like, do you mean weeks, months, years, decades, centuries? Because it's been a while. But there was something. You can get that sense of expectancy and anticipation growing. Oh, we thought John could be the Messiah, but he's pointing the way. At least he's signposting to somebody. And they didn't have to wait long. Because shortly after, John baptized his cousin Jesus 
And we read in the baptism of Jesus that a Holy Spirit descended on him in, in the form of a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now there would have been people there who had heard what John had said about this coming person and Messiah. And they would have seen this, this, this form of a dove and this voice from heaven. And come on, I'm sure a few of them are able to put two and two together. At that point, at that point, two and two together, I think it's, I think, I think it's happening. I think it's finally happening. And then what does Jesus do? When, when expectation has been at its highest for nearly a thousand years, he leaves them for 40 days to go into the desert. He leaves them hanging for another 40 days. Like, I feel for them. That's, that's a bit harsh. But he leaves them for 40 days and goes into the wilderness and is tempted um, by Satan. And then we read in Luke 4 that he comes um, out of the wilderness uh, in, in the power of the Spirit. He says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He comes out. You can imagine some of the conversations. Have you heard Jesus? Yeah, the guy who was baptized, the guy that John, I'm sure, I'm sure was pointing to. He's, he's returned. He, he was away for, 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 a long, for a while, but he's returned. And he's, and he's saying some amazing things and doing some amazing things. The anticipation, expectation, building and building. And the, the Jewish historian Josephus says that the, the region uh, around Galilee and the surrounding areas, he said there was three million people there. Like he, he, He's known to exaggerate a bit. Um, you know, more, many scholars sort of agree that there was three million. But this isn't, this isn't when we say the countryside and the region, this is a, this is a populous place. There's, 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 this is not a sparsely populated region um, of the Middle East or of the world. So we've got this sense, this, this expectation, this anticipation. So Jesus goes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So this was intentional. It's, he's decided to go to his hometown where he grew up, where people knew him since he was a toddler. He's gone to his synagogue. And for, it's quite clear that he would have been invited, actually, to go there. Part of a, a synagogue service would be similar to this. Alert, uh, you know, they, they, may have, they, would, they would try and invite uh, somebody to come and, uh, come and preach and to deliver a, a address. And the way that it's recorded, it seems to suggest that this was an invitation, that Jesus had been doing all the things that he'd been doing, and he was going towards Navarus, and he's been invited to come and speak in a synagogue. So he stood up to read Isaiah and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And if you had a mic, he would be warranted to drop it. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, before we, we get on to the end of Luke 4, and it's quite a tragic ending, to be honest. Just as a heads up, it's quite a, a tragic ending. But, and I've, I'm going to be repeating myself, I know I've brought this a couple of times, but it's worth, you know, worth making this point. It always surprises me the approach that God has, has taken. When Dave brought last week about his uh, God's rescue plan and how that's been enacted and, and, and worked through, that approach is always, it always surprises me. And why I say that is because what could have happened, Jesus could have stood up and said this and carried on for three years doing his ministry as he did making the ultimate sacrifice so that we're saved and justified before God, so that we are then holy, without blemish, pure as white as snow, to stand then before God for eternity. And then left, job done. And just said, and, and just as he's departing, just say, just, just try and be good before I come back. Just try and do your best just to behave before I come back. God could have done that. That could have been an approach. But it always pleasantly and just wonderfully surprises me that God desires for us to participate in this fully. God desires for us to participate. And just as Jesus said the Spirit of the Lord is on me, we are encouraged to declare that the Spirit of the Lord is on us. Because Jesus didn't just leave he left, but, but behind him was left the Holy Spirit. And we can see just in the last slide, and you know, this could have gone over many, many slides, throughout, not just the New Testament, not just in Paul's writings and Paul's letters, but even in the Old Testament, of the Spirit of the Lord being in us, dwelling in us as we um, are, are a temple, that we've been given a, a spirit of sonship and adoption, not a spirit of slavery. But with the Spirit of the Lord dwells in us. And just as Jesus declared, so can we, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon all of us. So then, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. Because what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? When Jesus has declared that I've been here, I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor, to, to bring freedom for the prisoners. You know, of course, that meant 
something specifically at that time. For us, it can mean many things. Good news to the, to the spiritually poor, to the, to the people that are poor in their identity and to their own self. People that are captive to addiction and patterns and behaviour and attitudes and ways of thinking. But it's a challenge. This is how God has decided to ordain his rescue plan, for us to be fully participant in it, for us to declare as children of God that the spirit of the Lord is in us and reigns in us. The question, friends, that we've got to answer is what do we do with that? And I want to specifically look at in, in one, this in one particular context. So let me finish Luke 4, which I said has a bit of a, a tragic ending. So, so when, he finished speak, when he finished speaking, they, they all spelt, spoke well of him. And they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? So just, just hold on to that, because this is not an innocent question. We know that by Jesus' response. This is a quite a pointed question. So they ask, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus heard them and said, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, which was the, the wider region. I tell you the truth, he, con he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Sephamph in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naman the Syrian. And then we read at this, the people that knew him, the people that had, he had grown up with in his hometown were furious, furious to a point that they drove him out of the town, tried dragging him up to the cliff face to push him off to then stone him. And he obviously got away. What a dramatic end to the chapter what a turnaround when we looked at the anticipation and the expectation of this coming Messiah for nearly a thousand years and for, his, for the people in his own hometown to very quickly turn in the way they did it starts at that question isn't this Joseph's son isn't this Joseph's son and a bit before that, when it's, it's fairly clear that he was invited to come and speak. Because he was so familiar to them, there would have been people there that would have been seeing the things that Jesus was doing in the region and saying, hey, come on, you've come, come to your hometown. Surely we get preferential treatment. Surely we're going to get a few favours. If the Messiah is from Nazareth, well, that's going to put Nazareth on the map. We're going to get, we, must be, we must be getting better treatment than, than, than other places in the region. And, but there would be another group of people who would have asked that question, isn't this Joseph's son? Who are implying by that, no, 
this isn't the Messiah, this isn't the Saviour. This is, this is the boy who, this is the carpenter's son who's at the workshop, who sanded down my chairs 15 years ago. This isn't the, this isn't the Messiah. No, it can't come from Nazareth. This is Joseph's boy. Surely not. He was easier to eject because he was familiar to them. But still, Jesus decided to do what he did and to go to his hometown, to go to his synagogue and declare there for the first time very clearly that he was the Messiah. So when we're looking at God asking us to participate and the Spirit of the Lord being upon us, it got me questioning. You know, my own hometown, what that looks like, starting at home. And there's many reasons why that is the most difficult place to start and the most difficult thing to do. It can be very, very tough. You may be the only Christian in your family. You may be the only Christian family in your wider family. You might be the only Christian in your team at work or the only Christian in your close circle of friends. And just as Jesus was in Nazareth, he was familiar and well-known to them. And that can make it tough. Because, they've, because these people, your family, your close friends, those at work who see you every day, they've seen you at your worst and they've seen you at your best. They've seen you react in maybe a particularly bad way speak in a particularly bad way or not do particularly, uh, you know, do unchristian things perhaps. And you may have in your mind to say, well, the moment's gone. they, they They know me too well. They know me warts and all. And I'm in no place to talk to them about my Christian faith or Christianity because I might come across as a, a hypocrite, perhaps. And actually, they, they need to have someone come into their life that they don't really know that well, a sanitized Christian with no track record with them to then speak life-affirming truths. That is a lie. That is a lie. You are, just as Esther was, the right time is this. You are the right person. Now, this then may bring conviction. Because, yes, you may need to look at how you're speaking. You may need to look at how you're acting, how you're responding, the way that you're portraying to others. Be convicted by that if need be. But don't believe a lie that this person that you hold dear, this close friend, this family member, needs somebody else. The moment's gone and you're not the right person to to, to talk to them about your faith and about Jesus and about your church. Don't believe that lie. And it may be uncomfortable. It may be very uncomfortable. Because you may have had a conversation, perhaps with a family member, 20, 30 years ago. And it didn't go well. 
Or you just don't talk about it anymore. And you've just let that situation lie and that stone to be unturned and saying, look, they know that I'm a Christian, but they don't need me to talk about it anymore to them. They know my feelings. And that conversation that week that happened many, many years ago, it's too painful, too uncomfortable. I don't want to go there. I just don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I'd rather just let sleeping dogs lie. I don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation or be that person that seems to be banging that same drum or bringing it up. And ultimately, it's costly. And it can be costly. At work, if you're, do you are convicted to change the way that you speak or the way that you behave so then you can give an authentic representation of, of Christianity or to bring it up in conversation, it can lead to, yeah, it can lead to, to ridicule or to sort of some difficult moments. It can be even costly in a family relationship. Look, I'm not prepared to speak to you about this anymore. I, I don't feel comfortable speaking about it. So, look, you know, they might not answer your next call, answer your next invitation. There's cost involved to it. But is it worth it? Is it worth it for all that you know about your, if you're a Christian here today, all you know about Jesus, all you know about your faith, all you know about your journey, all you know about your church family, all you know about the transformation that has happened in your life, all the blessings that have been poured into your life, is it worth it? Because it was worth it to Jesus. It was worth it to Jesus. Jesus went to his hometown. He spoke to the people that maybe have babysat him, the people that he played tag with, the people that he grew up with, the people that had seen him since he was a toddler. And it was worth it. Because of what happened, he sacrificed on that day many relationships. Many relationships of people turned against him, dragging him to get thrown off a cliff. That cost was worth it for Jesus. Because there would have been, I'm sure, some there that would have accepted his claim and followed him for the rest of their lives. Jesus was prepared to pay that cost that day. Yes, some relationships would be harmed, maybe even to a point where they couldn't be reconciled, but it was worth it for him. And it's always very hard to hear, but when people say, well, Jesus did, so shall, so shall we. But if we're not, going after Christ-likeness, if we're not going after um, seeing Christ more and more in us, then what are we doing? What are we doing? It was worth it for Christ. Is it worth it for us?
And lastly, you may actually be here and never called on the Lord for the Spirit of the Lord to fall upon you. You may be even just grappling with this whole Christianity thing and who Jesus is to you. We saw in John the Baptist's time, the people were waiting expectantly and their hearts were wondering. You may be waiting expectantly for many years for, for something to actually come and bring that fulfillment and bring that satisfaction. You may have found, tried to find it in a, uh, in a job, in a relationship, in a promotion, in material things. Just like those people were 2,000 years ago, millions are still waiting expectantly. And in their hearts wondering, is this it? Is this the best there is? Is this all that we can expect? And for those that have been waiting expectantly with their hearts wondering, Jesus proclaims just as he did 2,000 years ago, I have come and I am here and I am all you need. He stands up now in front of your life and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the good news to you, to bind your heart, to set you free, to bring good news to every sort of, def- uh, every sort of poor and lacking part of your life. So I'll just invite the band to to come up and lead us in a song. And I ask you to to respond. Feel free to sing and participate in this song as well. But just have those questions in your mind. God has chosen this approach for us to participate in this rescue plan for us to have the Spirit of the Lord on us. What are we going to do with that? For those that you hold dearest and closest, for those conversations and stones that you've left unturned maybe for many years, is it worth it to reopen it? Is it worth it to come alongside that close friend or that family member Is it worth it? And if you're here and never ask the Spirit of the Lord to come upon you now, I invite you just to rest in him and just to uh, allow God to work through you. And whether you've asked the Spirit of the Lord to fall upon you for the first time or for the hundredth time today, I invite you to do it now. There's no mental gymnastics involved. You don't have to screw up your face and strain. Just rest in his presence and let God wash over you now.